This episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Today is Monday, uh, June 18th. Uh, it is a beautiful, overcast day here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Here, here. Um, we, we actually had to just redo this because I said Minneapolis the first time, and she got really mad at me. But I absolutely in, will not let we, this aggression stand. <laughs> we are in St. Paul. Um, It's great here. We hope it is not quite as hot and humid wherever you are. But um, before we get into what I think should be a pretty kind of fun show about some craft stuff and some category stuff, um, how about the basic rundown? Of course. For those of you who are Patreon members, excellent. Mm -hmm. Welcome and thank you. Um, For those that aren't, you might want to consider joining this month because not only (laughs) is the query show already out, but we have the first pages coming for you this week and Mm -hmm. as well as our regular third special episode. But we have something extra special for you this month and it is publishing D&D. Yeah, it's going to be pretty fun, mostly because I've never played D&D in any capacity before. I've never even seen it played. I've never even been in the You've room. You watched Stranger well, Things. I did actually, yeah. So I've watched I watched Stranger Things. That counts. Um but yeah, no, it's going to be fun. I'm mostly just going to show up and probably get led into what I can only assume are some horrifically um horrific situations that Probably some my- <laughs> great traps. <laughs> anyway, we're going to be doing that finally that that episode, um, it you know, if you guys liked it, we liked doing it, so we figured we'd kind of make a thing out of it, yeah. and that is coming later this month. And if you join and enough people like it on Patreon, we will turn it into a campaign, <laughs> which I am just so excited about. Yeah, that'll be good. Um, so if you want Eric to be intern Kevin on air for the foreseeable future, <laughs> this is your chance. Go to patreon.com slash print run. Um, also, as a as a note, we have kind of slowed down on our queries and for page submissions so send those to us for critique at printrunpodcast at gmail.com mm-hmm. great okay so eric yeah let's get into probably what is you know inarguably the most important topic that we've ever discussed on print run i'd say so yeah which is the npr raccoon <laughs> god <laughs> what a great day first of all just this little guy climbing up the building um, I just want to start any of this by declaring an absolute embargo on the rights to the story. Um, one of my authors declared an embargo on something the other day, which I thought Explain was very... Explain to the people what that means. <laughs> well, usually usually what it means is like a po- if a publisher has um, like a book that they don't want to leak or something, like if you've got the big new hot novel from some uber famous author and you don't want it to get out yet, you know, you just like say it's, you know... It's under embargo and you can't, you know, share the materials anywhere externally, right? But um, so it's also a term that gets misused a ton in publishing and elsewhere. But um, I am going to misuse it here and declare that the story is ours. Um, we have signed it. No, we called it. We get dibs on the NPR <laughs> raccoon story um, because we've got this great children's book idea that I think is going to really charm the young children of the Midwest and perhaps everywhere. Yeah, because, you know... 
if if anything will reach the hearts of children nine to ninety nine mm-hmm. or like two to ninety nine. And don't count out those hundred year olds either. Two I mean, to a hundred and two. How about that? <laughs> yeah. How about if you're a hundred and three, too bad. But yeah. everybody else, yeah. you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that will get them all together is a raccoon climbing a building in broad daylight. Um <laughs> So let's let's talk about this, because our idea is mostly just to have a picture book about the NPR raccoon. Right. Um, so we've got some details to nail down. We sure do. Um, yeah. The first question that comes up with every children's book I've ever been a part of is, does it need to rhyme? Mm. Is your MP- is, or I guess maybe what's our story first? It's, I think it's just like the thing climbing the building, right? And it's sort of this epic quest up the side of the yeah. of this horrible concrete to get the media food. building. Yeah. It got cat food. It at got the top? Frisky's cat food oh, at the top. God. Apparently, is Frisky's running with that ad. They I, they better. We I don't are know. the cat, the official cat food of this horrible raccoon that climbed yeah. this building. I wonder if it was Sea Captain's choice. <laughs> I don't even know what that is, and I'm mad about it. <laughs> with our, ugh, I'm gonna be a crazy cat lady here. My cats just really, now or in shut up. My cats really love specifically the seafood pate variety pack of Friskies. <laughs> Their most favorite is Sea Captain's Choice. And whenever my fiance opens up a can for them, he goes, he chose it. Oh um, there's also Fisherman's Catch, who he chose it or he caught it. But I like oh Sea Captain's God. Choice better because, you know, it's ranked higher, obviously. Um, <laughs> this is absolutely all getting cut from the episode. Um, <laughs> but so we've got this. We've got the story. Yep. What are we doing here? So, so we've got the thing climbing the thing yep. going for the cat food. Yep, Does it yep, need yep. to rhyme? Are you a big fan of rhyming children's I, books? Well, before we get to the rhyming, mm-hmm. do we want the story to end when when the when the raccoon reaches the top or when the raccoon gets released amongst all of its other raccoon friends on like... Uh, you know, like on the ground well, sure. in a sanctuary. Well, so that's something else we should talk about because I've actually taken some liberties with the story. Um, now the raccoon is the um, head of NPR. Oh! Um, he's now a media mogul. She is now a media mogul. Um, and mm. we're going to be pitching our show to her very mm. soon. Yeah. So uh, what yeah. is at the top? Is like the top like so that the raccoon can take over the radio just waves? The bi- yeah, just the big comfy executive chair mm. is what's up there. Mm. Just goes up there, gets in the chair. And then that's it. Everyone has to swear fealty to the raccoon, who's now in charge of okay. delightful programming throughout the Twin Cities area. So the current, which is our <laughs> local like yeah. current music station, it's mm-hmm. got like lots of like indie rock and modern mm-hmm. stuff and whatever. Um, there, there are they're probably the most youthful of our NPR channels yep. out of the three. Yeah, uh, they released a music video with a song written by the uh, Currents programming director Jim McGuinn. I got through a minute of it before I started seeing. Which is like, funny because it's only like a red. minute forty-two. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's a it's a song about the NPR raccoon, which is really funny because the raccoon was climbing the UBS Plaza, which is right next to the NPR yeah. studios, not actually where NPR yeah. is. Yeah. Um but yeah, okay, so the the raccoon makes it to the top and now is the boss of Jim McGuinn, who is clearly the biggest fan, yeah. the one who wrote the song. So I think it should rhyme now that I think about okay, it. Okay, because Do it's you, like song related. Yeah, right, okay, exactly. Sure. This is sure. a fine purveyor of, you know, of public music now. Sure. You know, the rhyming should count. Sure. And then you've got, like, I mean, you've got raccoon, you've got balloon, which also has mm-hmm. lots of um, mm-hmm. lift, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Um, Are we commissioning bassoon? the Bassoon? Ooh. Ooh. Thank you. Man. Thank you. 
Wow. Um, are we commissioning the art for this? How I are feel we, like we should. Can I just draw it? Like, I'm a terrible artist, but, like, I could do some pencil sketches You absolutely this. cannot. This mm. is a professional work. Uh-huh. Um, well, okay, so if it's going to be music-related, we can do kind of, like, the thing where it's, like, the modern print kind of yeah. with the with the with the harsh lines and stuff but i feel like that's a that might be a little overdone mm-hmm. especially because like every wall in the twin cities has an npr mural that looks like that it does it's one thing um, about out here yeah we sure do have a lot of stupid murals yeah that's true <laughs> i was gonna say that like that's not that's not fair and then it's definitely fair um well we can do you know what i really liked somebody uh, drew a picture of the raccoon climbing with kind of like a watercolory kind of mm. sketch, but it was really bright. Yeah, like maybe that. You that, know, okay, that'll work. Yeah, because then you can play with the perspective a little bit, and you can make it feel like the raccoon's like twenty three stories up, like it was. Can we be in the story at all? Uh no. I'd like to be like one of the office workers, like looking out at it. Oh, like, like in the illustrations, yeah. or like to have dialogue. No, I don't need to. I don't necessarily need to have dialogue. Okay, in you the story. can be one of the people watching. I want to be the fireman on the roof. Mm. Okay. Yeah. First of all, firewoman, mm, Laura. Okay. If we could just be inclusive and appropriate. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, firewoman. Mm-hmm. Firewoman mm-hmm. on the roof. Um, with the gear and the hat. I look good in hats, Eric. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's climbing. It's climbing. And there's... I want there to be, like, a band on the roof, like, at the end credits of, like, 10 Things I Hate About You. <laughs> you know, they're just, like... Yeah. They're just rocking out up at the top. And, the like, the raccoon has to get there to, like, right. sign the band and make the deal. Right. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. That. That, yeah, that could be good. So... Okay. How would you deal <clears throat> with the... Um, with the narrative uh, difficulty of that, the fact that the raccoon climbed down a few stories before it went back up again. I mean, it's one of those classic things in every story, right? Where the character faces a little self-doubt. Mm. You know, maybe it doesn't feel like it's cut out to have a media job in the 21st century, you know? <laughs> maybe this raccoon doesn't necessarily feel like its resume is up to snuff. But that you know what, though? It turns around. It keeps climbing. And it makes it to the top, and okay. it takes that prestige media job. What makes the raccoon turn around and keep climbing? Is it that they found something in themselves, or was it that the like all the people down below and all the people logged in on Twitter and the people <laughs> in the law offices on the other side of the window yeah. were like cheering it on? Yeah, I'm gonna say all of that, and then from what you've described earlier, just that sweet, sweet scent of cat food, mm. um, just luring it to the top. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fragrant. <laughs> um, okay, sure. Okay. It seems like we've got it. Yeah. Do we, Do you think we need to pay UBS at all? We're not paying UBS a damn thing. Okay. They can come take it from us. Okay. Yeah. Great. I feel good about that legally. <laughs> um, okay. So that... If you're a lawyer, write to us at printrunpodcast at gmail. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's the story. Mm-hmm. How would you pitch this? Oh, God. I don't know. Like, in our pitch letter to... Uh, to all of the agent or all of the editors that do picture books. To be clear, I totally have a um, like, girls meets Richard Scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know the NPR song that uh-huh. they did about the raccoon had like a little nod to Mary Tyler Moore yeah. with the line like "You're gonna make it after all." Right. Like maybe it can be something like. I don't know, like, 
the little engine that could meets Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. I'm just picturing like a like one of those just shows like one of those million shows set in Brooklyn, right? Where like all of them are like, you know, journalists or like editorial assistants or whatever. And making so and, much money. Right, right, right. Except like it's all the characters are like the little Richard Scary like animals, you know, like the little cat and like the little thing riding in the Apple helicopter and yeah. stuff. That's kind of what I want. I want like sophisticated prestige TV, TV occupied by like illustrated cats and raccoons. <laughs> in a way, actually, I feel like we just described BoJack Horseman, which yeah. is like its own. Hmm. Um, we definitely just described yeah, BoJack scratch Horseman. Scratch that. And also, like, we um, also won't be paying them anything. For yeah. This. And also, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. And yeah. probably some other stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. But okay, so. <laughs> So we're this not really we're not turning it into BoJack Horseman. <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. Uh-huh. I will if it gets made into a TV series. Like to have the voice actor be the voice of like the cigar chomping executive who's like hoping <laughs> that the raccoon doesn't make it. Yeah, that or I want it to be the person who keeps demanding that you know the news guy go get more pictures of Spider Man. Oh, you know oh, what I'm talking yes. about, like that, like kind of that voice. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like that's kind of what I want. Excellent. This very like okay. big important newspaper man voice. And we're gonna do this yeah. all in three hundred and fifty words mm-hmm. because that that's how many is, you get. That's how long a picture book is. Yeah. So this is great. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to making millions of dollars with you. If we see if I see, just so everyone knows, if I end up seeing and you know this is coming because it's publishing and anytime anything happens in any kind of viral way, someone has to try to snatch it up. If I find an NPR raccoon picture book like out in the wild like six months from now, I'm going to be furious. We can always do the coloring book instead. Oh yeah. That would be good. Then mm-hmm. I could like draw a little hat on him. That'd yeah, and then we can get a, a plushie. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and but instead of like what we would just do is we would just buy bulk of like the Como Zoo raccoon stuffed animals, and then just like sew little Velcro pads onto their feet. Yeah, so everything they can, about like, this. Climb. Everything about this is super legally sound, and I'm really pleased with where <laughs> we've where we've gotten here. Um, this man. is gonna be great. This is gonna be great. Now I have to learn how to write a picture book, which surprisingly, yeah. Eric, is just one of the most difficult things in the entire world. It is. like I So I actually sold a picture book last year, and in revisions of it with the author, I like found myself really having to think in a lot of different ways, right? Like you end up like having to write with regard to illustrations, which was something I found really weird. I know yeah. this is not what we are like planning to talk about on the show, but now we're like on it for a second. So um it's just like you have to like decide what can be expressed over illustration and what should actually go in the text itself and like mm-hmm. what can it's because you don't really, want to double up on exactly anything. like you don't, you want to use the space you want to not be redundant it's really actually a really interesting um, form and, and a lot of times when you sell the book unless you're an author illustrator yeah. which Eric most certainly is not <laughs> um, unless you're an author illustrator I'm like not. the illustrations aren't made yet so no, you just no, have no, to like no. believe in people being able to close no. their eyes and imagine something really great um and not completely like misunderstand the point of the book which is why i'm just rubbish at them Mm -hmm, me too but anyway um so should we get to the real topic of we should we should and unfortunately has nothing to do with raccoons well so not 
technically exclusively true. Really? I mean, you could have a raccoon in the scenario we're about to describe. Oh, okay. Um, I was hoping that you actually like had one ready to go, but that's okay. <laughs> I did not. Um, well, what's Redwall? Didn't that have a bunch of little rodents running around? We should probably tell everybody what the topic is <laughs> anyway, before we start arguing about sure. what counts. Yeah, that's true. Um, so you and I had this conversation the other day, and we both were kind of talking about this, this specific kind of book that we both, I think, really enjoy, yeah. right? And that's this is actually a change for the show because oftentimes we talk about things we don't like. But today we're going to talk about something we, we do. Um, and that is the book that is mostly realist, right? The book kind of set in a real setting of some kind with real people and real, um, you know, a normal functioning universe as we would be familiar with. But with like one or two little speculative tweaks, right? Like maybe like one tiny little element of magic or maybe one little piece of science fiction that works its way in and has vast implications for the story, you know? And to be clear, like when we say a little tweak, we mean like a little tweak to the world, but it might have, you know, catastrophic changes on the story itself. Right. Um, But these books, I think you and I generally have very different reading tastes. And Mm -hmm. I think that these books collectively are both of our favorite books ever to read. Yeah, and so like some, you know, just like so people can kind of get a sense of what we're talking about. Like for me, the classic example is like The Prestige, right? Like I love that, you know, I love that movie. I love that story. It's something I think about a lot. It's kind of that thing, right? Or like here, you know, we've got listed, you know, Station Eleven kind of fits this, you know, um, so does Age of Miracles. Um, the Night Circus. Swamplandia fits this mold, actually. If you remember, you know, the character kind of talking to ghosts a little bit, like... You know, any of that kind of stuff. where Sing, Unburied, Sing. Yeah. Anything written by Colson Whitehead. Well, so that... Actually, you know, we just listed a lot of pretty hot contemporary Big authors. Hitters. Right? Like, these are... So, clearly, this is something that, you know, is sort of in right now in a lot of ways. And I think that the fundamental question we kind of wanted to get at is what makes a book, you know, fa- you know true SFF, right? Like, what makes a book science fiction and fantasy... As opposed to a book being something that would be considered realist, you know, or quote unquote literary. And obviously there's literary sci-fi, but I think this is even something different than that, you know. Like what would make a book sort of realist fiction with a tweak as opposed to a book that is sort of that sort of hinges on, you know, fantastic elements and things like that. Hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of elements, uh, but I find that the biggest one kind of the easiest way that i in my mind shunt them aside Mm -hmm. is that in science fiction and fantasy the fantastical elements of the book are very much a given for their main character they're facts of life they're facts of life um like even even though, you know, when you consider like portal fantasies or something where you have somebody in this mundane world who then all of a sudden goes into this other one. Yeah. Um, those still very much it's never am I making this up? You know, right. it's it's real in that sort of way. Um, and then, you know, if there is a question of like, am I just imagining this or is somebody <laughs> doing this? like it's it's kind of. It's not the the thrust of the book. It's just a little moment of doubt in what is largely considered to be just kind of the way that it is. Yeah. Well, I think that that, um, that little phrase in there, you know, the am I just imagining this sort of stands as a proxy for what really to me feels like the larger hinge 
in all this, mm-hmm. you know, because in the kind of stuff we're talking about, you have a world that is meant to resemble ours, right? And so that means that when a twist is presented or when something new, you know, in the just either the physics of the universe or like the, you know, I don't know anything, like I don't know what you would call, you know, the appearance of some sort of um, supernatural element. But um, if that happens in a universe like ours, there becomes a necessary element of grappling with it, right? Yeah. Like your your main character or any of the characters has to kind of take stock of their life all of a sudden. One of the things that's always drawn me to this sort of story is that moment of reckoning that first happens when you realize that the very like fabric of the world you're in has changed, right? And what you just described is true. Like in a novel that I think is more truly fantasy or science fiction, like that moment, go it takes a little bit less because, like you said, that stuff is more treated as ingrained into the fabric of the world. Whereas, and I think the kind of stuff we're talking about here, it's not, right? Like, it's practically a plot point for that thing to arise, right? And suddenly, the character has to, you know, come to terms with an entirely new set of rules than the ones they've been brought up, you know, to And usually they have to do it on their own. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because maybe there's like an element of like having to convince others mm-hmm. or like having to convince themselves. I think another part of this is with with the character grappling with whatever this new element is, whether it's time travel or magic or ghosts or uh, fortunes that come true. Yeah. Um, I I think it's you know in a lot of ways it's you know does the character think that this is weird. But in the other way, a lot of it has to do with the writing. Mm-hmm. You know, the writing treats the element as special. It's dramatic when it appears. It's dramatic when it appears. Yeah. Whereas characters who even, you know, just got magic for the first time in a fantasy novel, it's it's not treated as uniquely, I think. Well, it sort of gets at that idea of world building almost, doesn't it? Because like when you present a world that from the start is meant to be different than this one, you have to build that for your reader a little bit, right? And and that isn't necessarily, I think the reason people sometimes have hangups with that is it's not necessarily the most like dramatically interesting thing to have to do on the page, (laughs) you know? No, inventing an entire society from scratch and an entire worldview and all sorts of new rules is is very difficult. It's and it's static, right? It's not like part of it's or it should be, but it often can fall into not being the plot, right? Like too much world building and suddenly you're just like page after page of like describing a, you know, universe that, you know, we'd rather just see something happen in without knowing every last bit of its Which is why everybody makes fun of, like, feast scenes, (laughs) for example. And so, and this feels, but this feels different because here, you know, the world doesn't need any building because we know what the, we, it's ours. Like, there's less, there's much less of that. But, and so when this thing happens, the way it gets portrayed is more, it has more to do with kind of the shock and awe and the drama of it. Like, I don't know, like, I can never, anytime I read any, you know, novel with a speculative element, the thing that really, like, as just a purely, you know, entertainment-focused reader, the thing that I always find myself most inhabiting is that idea of, like, what would I do, like, if something like that happened? Like, if you know, if you just, like, you, Laura Zatz over there, were suddenly, like, levitating in front of me, you know what I mean? Like, or any other weird thing that just suddenly happened, like, and... 
it's it's just such an interesting question and it, and I, it to me it's just such fertile ground for drama on the page or in characters like you know if so much of writing is like based on you know giving your characters obstacles to kind of solve or problems to solve like that particular one like having to come to grips with an entirely new you know circumstance of how the universe works to me it's it's um i don't know i find it to be really it lends itself to sort of the literary style that i think we're both talking about here do you think that because of that grappling there is necessarily an element of mystery in literary fiction with speculative elements that doesn't necessarily need to exist in um, speculative fiction? Yeah, no, I mean, I think so. I mean, that mystery is, well, it's because suddenly it just lends itself so well to this idea of something needing solving, right? Like some piece of information suddenly missing, right? Because whatever your plot is, when you introduce something like that, the mystery has now become the world, right? Or like in the, you know, or this thing has now become something that is deeply integral into what you thought was a given. And so, yeah, this idea of like having a mystery to solve or like, you know, so many of these stories we're talking about all kind of feature, you know, things that, you know, deeply need, you know, figuring out on sort of a sleuth level, you know? I think it does. It really does kind of lend itself to that because it's, it's that gets back to that idea of belief, yeah. right? It takes a little bit longer for any realistically rendered character to come to grips with these things, you know? And for the reader, a big part of it is also deciding on a page-by-page basis what you believe about it. Yeah, you know, whether you believe that really it's real good. or yeah. what it's not, which is very similar to a reader being asked to parse clues and information that they're presented in a mystery. Mm-hmm. So it's a very similar part of the process, which is, I think, why... Um, that that feels very familiar to mm-hmm. a literary fiction reader. You know, like in Station Eleven, you have that thread of, you know, where the comics came from mm-hmm. and how they got to all of the people that they're at and where is it that they're actually going. And even that is not a mystery, but it's it's something that needs to be discovered by us and by the characters in the book. Right. I think a lot about setting, right? Because I work on literary science fiction and fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I have had a a hell of a time with a fair (laughs) number of my projects trying to place them. And I always do this thing where I always give it a shot to sell a book to science fiction fantasy imprints and to literary imprints. And a lot of the time, you know, the science fiction fantasy imprints will say, no, this is too literary. But the literary imprints will say, no, this is too science fiction-y for me. And I think a big part of that, (laughs) I think a big part of that um, with the the literary imprints is setting. So I want you to unpack that a little bit for me because that's, I think, fascinating. And we're going to talk about publishing categories like that in a minute. But I think there's something really interesting on on a craft level that you're talking about here. Yeah. So, okay. So take, for instance, and I'm going to get really specific here, my author River Solomon's An Unkindness of Ghosts, Mm -hmm. which I eventually placed with Akashic and has been selling very, very well. It's up for the the Campbell Award Mm -hmm. um, at Worldcon this year. If you're going, you should vote for it. I would really (laughs) love it if we win. Um, But so this project, it is the, the fundamental thrust of it. Right. Is that there's this character, the main character named Aster, who is 
set on this path to discover what happened to her mother 25 years prior. And what is happening with their mother is the same way that the most recent sovereign of their generation ship has just died of, right? And mm-hmm. so this takes place on a spaceship. It's, you know, it's it's that common trope of the generation ship where you've got, you know, right. like it's Noah's Ark style, mm-hmm. you know, where we're flying to the the promised land. Um, and the setting of this project is it's, it is indeed a spaceship, but it's very reminiscent of Antebellum South. Mm-hmm. So essentially all of the... the um, main characters are sharecroppers, right? And there is this religious extremism coming from the top down and all of these indignities that are being laid upon all of these characters. And it is essentially like the way that I pitched this book to most people, the way that I feel like it is most truly discussed is that this is a book about transgenerational trauma, Right. Like this is this is a physical manifestation of that. It's a bunch of people stuck on a ship and all of the new people are being treated in more harsh and worse ways than the people before them. And they're carrying all of that with them. So let me make an observation real quick. What you just described feels very literary. It is. It's like that book that you as described is very much it's about real themes it's about real it's about you know it's sure it's set on a spaceship but it's got ideas that feel very prevalent to um you know sort of the real world and kind of contemporary experience in a way that you know at, in my you know editor brain i'm thinking okay that's a literary novel pretty yeah. straightforward it but do- yeah but it takes place on a spaceship eric right. and so a lot of the time um the editors at literary houses couldn't get past the fact that it's on a spaceship hmm And a lot of the science fiction fantasy editors couldn't necessarily get behind the fact that the plot is essentially not playing with science fiction fantasy tropes at all. Like in terms of like and we've talked before about how um, genre fiction. So that's mystery, thriller, romance, science fiction and fantasy. um, All of these categories of books play on the larger like tropes and themes of the canon that comes before it right and so like for romance example you have you know enemies to lovers and surprise baby and kind of all of this this very metered expectations that your reader is going to have science fiction fantasy is less so but at the very least you know a book for it to to really hit home in a lot of um in in the in the perception of a publisher that does science fiction and fantasy is that the book needs to really engage with those tropes or you know mm-hmm. in in whatever way so if it's a book about time travel great if it's a book that's a space opera great if it's you know like this is where all the subgenres come from right. you know like the vampires right. werewolves etc like those are all tropes right mm-hmm. um And the problem with this book is that the story is not about the generation ship. The story is about like what is happening to the people and the ship is a very, very small part of it. Sure. And so it was kind of caught in this weird limbo. And of course, like the market always shows itself to be a lot more forgiving than what publishers think it will be. So it's actually doing quite well. But um, it's it's caught in that middle thing. And I think setting was a really big part of that. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, 
and so i mean i also think you know we've kind of as we were kind of talking about before this like different elements go with different you know settings yeah. right like you know we have here you know like historical fiction lends itself more to you know magic because stuff, everything right? feels really foreign to the reader anyway mm-hmm. you know like you the kind of the only thing that you have in your mind of 1860s england is what you've seen on the television mm-hmm. and so when you're bringing in a fantastical element there it already feels fresh. I mean, like, think about what happened in the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Like, somebody seeing a steam engine for the first time, that felt like magic. Yeah, exactly. You know, seeing, you know, seeing all of these science experiments at the World Fair, like, that feels like magic. Mm-hmm. And so it fits really well in our estimation that that's what that is. Yeah. Whereas if you give somebody a highly scientific idea, that, I think, works best in literary fiction in a lot more of a mundane setting. Sure. So for example, you know, there's there's Age of Miracles takes place in like a a suburban neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Where and and the the premise of that book it's it's extremely good. It was from I think 2011. It um it is all about this 11-year-old girl the summer that the earth's rotation just starts to slow. Mm-hmm. And all of the weird things that happen, you know, the days get longer, the nights get longer, you know, people kind of faction out into whether you want to keep the the regular 24 hour schedule or you want to go by the sun. Um, things change quite a bit in that way. Yeah. And it works really well because it's just you give something so mundane and then you give them this big but then this happens and then it has to adjust. And because it works so well, you know, you have this very quiet, very regimented world and then you can see how it's thrown upside down no that makes that makes total sense um so i mean all of this stuff is sort of you know we're kind of talking about divisions as they exist within within the books themselves right we're talking about writing stuff you know we're talking and we're kind of drifting a little bit into you know this next part which is how book people you know talk amongst themselves about this sort of projects whether it's to publicists or salespeople or, um, you know, bookstores or whoever it is, like the positioning conversation, you know, sort of like what you were talking about with Rivers' book, mm-hmm. um, it ends up being really interesting and kind of hinges on a lot of factors that feel very separate from craft Yeah. in a lot of ways. And so, you know, one thing, you know, one observation I have here about um, this list of books that we sort of put together for this all sort of, I mean, in their own way, you know, these, they came to mind because they were, you know, blockbuster hits, you know, these were books that it feels like everybody read that you know i mean colson whitehead won the national book award sing unburied sing won um the national, national book, book award, award too. i was <laughs> trying to remember which one um yeah i mean these are you know these are award-winning big books and i wonder you know like if you walked into a bookstore yeah especially when these kind of came out all of these books i feel like are on what is called like the general fiction table out yeah. front where, which always ends up serving sort of as an unofficial proxy for, like, literary fiction, you know? And I just have this question, you know, sometimes I wonder if, you know, the way bookstores kind of filter these things through is that if they have a book that, um, you know, feels particularly, you know, like if they think that it's prestigious enough or if it's big enough or if it's from a name brand enough, you know, you can end up, like, genre as a selling category, you know, it sort of almost falls away. 
in a strange, at least in some small way. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, you can have an author who's like too big for a category. Yeah. If that makes sense. You have to decide whether having this book nestled in a smaller genre is going to give it a boost or if it's going to pull away from what the sales it might have. So, for example... Um, I finally finished reading an arc that I got in 2016. <laughs> Whoopsies. I still have a lot of those uh, too. But it was Elon Mosti's All Are Wrong Todays. Mm-hmm. And this book was published by, you know, very like a, a general fiction, literary fiction press. Yeah. And Elon Mosti, if you don't know the name, I certainly didn't. Um, this is his debut. But this book was really um, a big deal because I think he got like $1.2 million for it because he was a screenwriter. And Mm -hmm. so he has a lot of cachet in that way. And, you know, like I think the publisher was betting on him having a a big impact in that field and being able to to use all of that. And so this book was entirely – it's about time travel. Yeah. It's about like fixing timelines and it's, you know, the the main character is very much like a Wesley Chu character, right? Sure. And, um, but it's an, it's a completely in a different part of the bookstore. And it's because I think if this publisher were to label it with science fiction on it, then it would go in the science fiction part of the bookstore, which fewer people visit than visit the general fiction part of the bookstore. Yeah. And then you couldn't get that $1.2 million back. <laughs> and like what's interesting there is like you would think that that logic would apply to everywhere. Like what because it sounds, you know, in a way what you just described, it's like, well, there's more exposure. There's more exposure up front. So why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't, you know, publishers want all of their books to kind of be in kind of the big space? And I think that that's where, um, you know, the actual answer kind of gets into, you know, like what you were saying, like. Is this who's going to find this book and yeah. who's and who's the reader of it? Because some books I think do end up transcending selling category because people who don't consider themselves, you know, science fiction or fantasy readers might find it and pick it up without acti- actively engaging in the in the fact that it's that kind of a story. Yeah, like f- you know me for instance, I'm not someone who you know seeks out science science fiction and fantasy specifically because it's that you know what i mean like i will read obviously you know we're talking about these books like i will read stories that are like that but i'm probably going to find them through that way you just described as you know when they're positioned as you know literary with you know an element to it that you know skews it a little off and because i've been you know conditioned to believe that stuff on this table has a certain you know literary quality to it i'm probably going to be pretty open-minded in terms of like premise and genre you know what i mean um but whereas i will actually go to the smaller area and look for them right because i am looking for something specifically science fiction or fantasy and you might and that means that you might you know as you pick one of these up and let's you know you could theoretically read one of these books and despite how quote unquote you know well crafted it is, come away feeling maybe disappointed or unfulfilled because you didn't get the you know specific type of story you were looking for. Yeah. Right. Which which gets at you know I think you know that need for um, you know genre conventions. Right. Yeah. Like the reason these beats exist in these stories is not because we need them you know as crutches or we need them as you know, things that, you know, try to make all the books kind of look the same. It's because readers have come to really appreciate certain, you know, 
things that can either be fulfilled or overturned intentionally. And, um, you know, these, you know, some of these novels, you know, it just becomes a question of whether or not they're doing that adequately enough. And sometimes like you, you know, you're describing it. I'm glad that you found a home for what has clearly been a very (laughs) successful book, you know, like sometimes it sort of falls in between and, you know, sometimes it works out really well, like what you just described, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you can find, you know, you can sort of, you know, have people calling it too much of one thing or too or too little of another. A book you that's know? been positioned in the wrong way yeah. is a lot of times how publishers will um, the like blame the market. They're like, you know, we like how position didn't match how what the market wanted or something when they when they have put the book in the wrong place or it's been sold wrong. Yeah. Um, because people obviously don't have trouble with reading all of these types of books. Mm-hmm. Um, authors do though. <laughs> Eric, do you remember um, right around the time Station Eleven got really big when mm-hmm. Emily St. John Mendel was really um, upset that the back of her book said science fiction and oh, not yeah. speculative fiction? Oh, yeah, I remember this. Right. That is fascinating. She to made me. some people mad with that. She made I'm a lot of people clean. mad with that. But but you know, yeah. I think it's kind of worth exploring, right? right? Like yeah. why like why she disagreed with that choice and why she mm-hmm. made that distinction. And I'm wondering if, you know, it's I'm wondering if the publisher put science fiction because they thought of this as a very good crossover novel and mm-hmm. Emily St. John Mendel had really good um, cachet in literary fiction, but mm-hmm. not in science fiction. I think that if I had to guess for why an author would bristle at being called genre, it's because they feel that they're they belong on the big table. Yeah, they well, want to be. Here's the thing: yeah. she was put on the big right. table. Yeah, the you know, and so I'm like, my guess obviously is that the the publisher wanted to attract the science fiction mm-hmm. fantasy people, right? When she was already on the big table. Yeah. But her, like, the distinction between speculative fiction and science fiction is incredibly different here. Well, so what is, I mean, that actually gets it, I agree that that is kind of a, it's sort of a weird blurry line that does, like, I can picture all the connotations of that in my head. Like, when I hear science fiction and I hear speculative fiction, those are very different things to me, but I'm not sure I can quite, like pinned down in any kind of mechanical sense like what it is right like when you hear um because speculative could mean all kinds of different things and it does and it does yeah people in people in science fiction fantasy publishing use spec fic Mm -hmm. as kind of a shorthand to talk about all of the things right exactly like it sort of it sort of means everything and so an author wanting to be called that instead of science fiction i think is really interesting because speculative i think at least to me and you tell me if i'm wrong as someone who knows the category better than me speculative implies a little bit more leaning on traditional like literary styling i think for people who don't use it as shorthand in the science fiction fantasy industry yes speculative fiction feels a lot more grounded than science fiction right right yeah um and so you know, I, I'm, I wonder, you know, I mean, when you're talking about like selling literary novels, you know, to others, you know, whether it's to bookstores or even, you know, our job, like selling them to editors, um, you know, deciding whether or not it's called literary or not depends on whether you're trying to emphasize the story elements or like the line by line writing itself yeah. in a lot of ways. Right. 
or or as it relates to any other category. Like for instance, I've got this book right now that I'm working on that you know, I remember when I was first trying to pitch it, I sat there for a long time and tried to decide if I wanted to call it historical literary or literary historical. You know what I mean? Because oh, yeah, like, we had a we had a long discussion about that. You know what I mean? Like that. and it's it's because which you know, which one is modifying which, you know, and like it, it sort of gets at this big, broad question of whether or not you are um, trying to emphasize the line by line writing or the setting or in the case of, you know, this sort of science fiction mm-hmm. fantasy conversation, you know, the elements that are supernatural, you know, all this stuff. Um, it sort of gets down, I think, eventually to this question of are you trying to emphasize the author as a prose stylist? or not in a lot of ways. And um, it depends, that depends on if you think the author should be, you know, emphasized as a pro stylist. And if you think that it's the book's readers, whoever they are, are someone who really care about that, or if they're much more interested in, you know, story elements and other things like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I just looked up really quickly how Cormac McCarthy's The Road, Mm -hmm. which is a post-apocalyptic novel, like that is science fiction. Right, right. Right. It hasn't happened yet. Um, (laughs) Like where that is ranked. Um, And the two big categories on Amazon are uh, literary fiction, literary fiction, contemporary and just plain literary fiction. And I think that that's contemporary. I'll tell you why. It's because it has because eventually and this is what we're going to, you know, end with this as kind of our last little bit of advice in a minute. But um, like selling categories are much different than writing categories like you're right he's objectively not writing a you know he's writing a book that is not contemporary like in that sort of setting kind of way but that's where he's sold and that's where his readers are you know these like it's it has much less to do with what's in the book and more to do with who's reading it and that division occurs all the time and i think it's really interesting because it creates situations where you know like emily st john mandel gets you know, mad about how she's been categorized because they think someone is saying something about her writing as opposed to trying to make a publishing calculation, you know? And it's sort of the same thing you just pointed out. Like, these things are, these things are separate. Like, we use, it's almost like for every, all these things we're talking about, you know, terms like literary and um, science fiction and fantasy and speculative, they're words that have to have two separate definitions depending on the situation. One is for writers yep. as you're putting together the material, as you're you know working on your craft. And the other is for anyone who's actually trying to talk about that book to another professional. Yeah. You know? And it's frustrating because those change. Yeah. You know, all the like time. the meanings change and the meanings change, I think we can argue, based on the marketing position of a very successful other book. Mm-hmm. You know, like what is literary fiction now is very different from what was literary fiction 10 years ago or 20 years ago which brings us to you know our publishing tip or it's i guess it's both a writing tip and a publishing tip you know for today because it's kind of talking about both um which is that writing categories are not selling categories um you know these are separate considerations and as you kind of work through your manuscript you know if you're writing something you should write the book in the um, you know, in the craft, in the craft based way that you're thinking of it, you know, you should figure out, you know, what you think is the best story and worry a little bit further down the line in its formation 
about how to position it and things like that. Like yeah. I know, you know, a lot of writers, you know, end up doing things, especially writing, whether it's like, you know, YA or, you know, um, other types of genre stuff. Like you have to kind of pay attention to conventions. You have to kind of pay attention to trends and things like that. But my honest suggestion is write the book you're trying to write. And then after you've kind of created the thing in relation to the categories as you see them or, you know, on a, from a writer basis, then take a look at the mark and say, okay, well, hey, maybe I can, you know, maybe a necessary tweak here and there has to happen with regard to um, positioning this correctly, or maybe something will come to light that way in revision. But I think that authors can kind of wind themselves into knots trying to figure out how to reconcile writing categories with selling categories, you know? Yeah. Well, they're not at all the same thing. And a lot of the times, you know, I'm sitting at a conference and somebody tries to pitch me something that's like women's fiction mm -hmm. or, or, or romance. And I turn around and say, you know, it's the other one. Yeah. And a lot of the time they're just very blown away, but they're also like, there's an element of relief in that where it's they thought they were writing one thing and they thought they had to follow all these rules, but it turns out that they wrote the book that they actually wanted and it was something else and that's totally fine. Like you can have a something in mind when you're writing it. You know, and but that, it needs to change. And like that that kind of categorization, um, you know, I I'm thinking of a writer here in town who I've been working with and she had kind of a a long career before um she and I started working together on her current project. But, you know, she talks a lot about how you know, she's been writing kind of in the same style her whole career, and it's very literary. You know, she's kind of a, you know, literary fiction writer. And for the first few years of her career, first few books, rather, they kept trying to position her as women's fiction. Mm. And it just wasn't. And it wasn't really selling because it wasn't really written for that audience. But they kept trying to shoehorn her into this selling category that just wasn't what she was writing because, I mean, you know, I mean, publishing eras evolve and, you know, she was a woman writing, you know, a certain type of female character with, you know, and like, so they were trying to stick her into this certain way. And then eventually she changed presses and they said, no, we'll just call it literary fiction. And she found a ton of success and awards. You know what I mean? Because all of a sudden her book was being, and she hadn't really changed her style at all. You know what I mean? Like it was a thing where she knew what she was writing and she knew how she wanted to categorize herself in as a craftsman. And then, you know, once some once publishing, you know, decided to actually, you know, respond to that in the correct way, you know, it it fit and it clicked. And she's had a really, a really lovely career since then. And it's it's kind of the same thing here. Like some of this stuff, um, you have to kind of write the book, you know, as you see it and not bow to what can often feel like this infinite set of, you know, selling trends and things like that that can kind of knock you off your writerly game, you know. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this, our 73rd episode of Print Run. Man. Remember to tune in for publishing D&D &D, <laughs> uh, and send us your queries and first pages to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you for a regular episode next Tuesday. Thanks. Thanks.